shriek of the harpy. November 8th. Objective achieved! Guys, it finally happened. I got the job! Yes, your intrepid blogger Muriel Sharp has finally landed her dream gig as a film archivist. I'm so excited! It took me four years of undergrad and two posts, but I am at last ready to make my big screen debut. And by that I mean getting down with some serious archiving and film restoration. But of course, it wouldn't be my life if there wasn't a cloud to the silver lining. As it turns out, I'm not super crazy about my bosses. First of all, their names are Kurt and Kit. Are you fucking kidding me? Kurt and Kit? Did they, like, apply for their positions at the same time wearing matching outfits? At first I thought they had to be a couple. But nope, not even dating. They're both annoyingly attractive, too. Perfect, skinny, and blonde. Totally L.A. And we know how much I love that. Seriously, if I could live somewhere else, I'd be out of here in a heartbeat. I am so over this town. But here is where I need to be to do what I love. So Kurt and Kit are what I have to deal with. At least for the time being. Oh, and one thing. Of course, Kurt is a total chauvinist. Even after I got the job, he kept questioning me about my qualifications, and I'm like, hello, eight years of school. But no, he keeps going on and on about practical experience, as if I'm some ditzy girl who doesn't know how to handle a film print or something. And I mean, yeah, I haven't done a ton of print handling, but I spent a lot of time with Gina in the booth of the Crescent, and I think that with my education, the point should be moot. But it's not, because I am a woman. And Kit, instead of backing up a sister, just stands there nodding to everything Kurt says like some sort of Barbie automaton. Whatever. I'll make the best of it, but I got a misogynist vibe there, big time. Anyway, heading into the office to talk about my first real assignment. Later for now. The downtown Nickelodeon known to local cinephiles as The Old Nick, was tucked in between a Mexican grocer and a used stereo store on 8th Street in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. The once garish marquee had long been torn down, but the greasy window of the boarded-up ticket booth was still visible to the keen-eyed observer. Muriel had to use Google Maps to find it, a fact that gave her a twinge of shame as she prided herself on knowing the locations of all the old Hollywood movie houses. Even in its heyday, the Nick was a lesser-frequented theater, almost a second-run venue, so Muriel felt she could afford a little slack. Besides, as exciting as this assignment was, it seemed more janitorial than archive-related, and Muriel was a little off-put that this dingy rung on the ladder was where she was expected to start. I suppose I should be grateful that I landed the job, Muriel told herself, but thinking it was one thing, Believing was another matter entirely. Standing at the chained and padlocked front doors, she rooted through her fully stuffed backpack for the keys. 
Past a bag of Skittles and a travel bottle of Aussie hairspray, she found them, twisted and stuck in the tines of one of her roller-style hairbrushes. Muriel sighed as she pulled the keys loose, carrying the weight of the world on her mannish shoulders. Adding injury to insult, the sky began to drizzle, dampening her hair into a flat, frizzy mop. California rain was a rare and bad omen, thought Muriel glumly. Why did things always have to be so hard? But Muriel's soggy spirits were lifted as she took in the wonderful, decaying lobby with its grand staircase and tall proscenium archways. The velvet curtains were tattered and moth-eaten, and the fixtures, no doubt scavenged for scrap, were long gone. But the theater held proudly to its old-world glamour, even under an apocalyptic layer of dust. A toppled stanchion still clung to a coiled, rotted rope, and the ruin of a concession booth promised popcorn, soda, and candy that had long been consumed. Stepping fully into the lobby, Muriel's footfalls echoed off the chipped marble floor, invoking the ghost heels of moviegoers past, and she found herself swept up in a wave of nostalgia for a time she had never lived. To a film preservationist, this was not an uncommon sensation, but here, in this once vital house of cinema, the feelings were amplified tenfold, redefined with crystalline clarity. The focal point of the lobby was a large marble fountain that stood at the apex of the room like a holy altar. It was cracked and crumbling, and hadn't held water since the sixties at the latest, but it still had the power to command the viewer's attention. As a centerpiece for a movie theater lobby, it was quite unusual, both garish and beautiful, and Muriel approached it with a mixed appreciation. It was a multi-layered construction. A medium-sized pool hung suspended by a column above a larger ground-level pool, the seashell sculpt of both suggesting an odd mid-century fusion of nautical and art nouveau. Draped upon the column, in a spiraling heavenward pattern, were winged cherubs, or angels upon closer inspection. Even as an agnostically raised girl, Muriel had an affinity for angels, viewing them as symbols of feminine power and strength. It gave her some comfort to know they were there, keeping her in sight as she ventured into the darkened recesses of the theater. It took her a few minutes to find the breaker room, despite the fact that Kurt had explained to her in detail where it was located, to the far left of the dilapidated concession booth. It was dark and cluttered, and she needed her phone's flashlight to find her way, but when she flipped on the breakers, the theater was rewarded with welcoming light. Some bulbs popped from the strain of being suddenly revived, but the ones that survived gave off a hazily sufficient illumination. Apparently, Kit was good enough at her job to put in the necessary call to the power company and not leave her new employee fumbling in the dark. Hooray for small miracles, Muriel remarked aloud giving herself the tiniest of chuckles. Beyond the lobby were the doors leading to the main auditorium, and stepping through them, Muriel was once again transported across time. The three-story screen was yellowed and torn in several places, but it put to shame most found in modern megaplexes, outside of the ones made to IMAX specifications. One could easily imagine taking in a matinee show of Lawrence of Arabia here during its initial run and getting entirely lost in the projected vistas, overwhelmed by the sheer scope of the all-encompassing anamorphic image. The seats, still arranged in their three-section pattern, 
had long gone to seed, and the room hung thick with the smell of mildew, rot, and the specter of cigarettes long smoked. But it wouldn't have stopped Muriel from plopping down and digging into a bucket of popcorn had some time-traveling projectionist started running a freshly struck print of double indemnity, or even better, touch of evil. Above and to the back was a grand balcony, the kind you didn't see anymore in movie theaters, and Muriel could almost make out the silhouettes of couples necking in the shadowy back rows. Ten feet or so above the balcony was the dusty window of the projection booth, looking out over the auditorium like a giant's cataract pupil. There lay Muriel's destination, but down here, in the safety of the aisles, it didn't look like a very inviting place. The blackness within had the stillness of a crypt, and Muriel could not shake the feeling that whatever slept up there was something that was best left undisturbed. But it was her job to venture into that crypt, so after lingering a bit in the auditorium's splendor, she summoned her courage, slipped the key into the lock of the projection booth door, and entered to a stale gust of air. The light from the hall barely cut into the gloom, so Muriel fumbled along the wall for a light switch, at last finding one and flicking it on. She needed a moment to take in what lay there before her. The room was dusty and stale and didn't appear to have been used in many a decade, but this was all to be expected. The cutting table had fallen to termites in years of neglect, leaving one of the legs snapped and the tabletop tipped over at an angle. The splicing equipment sat rusting on the floor with scraps of old leader littered about it like scattered petals. But the projectors, twin hulks of iron, glass, and steel, looked shockingly intact. Muriel found herself running a hand along their smooth, pleasing forms, the way someone might do to a thoroughbred pony or a finely restored vintage car. There was a sensuality to their construction that was lost in modern equipment, a craftsmanship that had fallen by the wayside for the sake of efficiency and progress. It saddened Muriel to see them so neglected, and even though it had not been suggested or even implied in her duties, she was tempted to fire the twin workhorses up to see if they still ran. What was implicit in her duties was to inventory the moldy boxes that had been stored in the booth for the better part of the century and see if they held any lost prints. Stacks upon stacks of the boxes lined the walls, sagging under the weight of the years and leaning together like old people needing the other's support. They reeked of mildew and rot, and their corners were ragged and rat-chewed, but still they held a certain sad air of dignity. Might as well get started, Muriel sighed to herself. But in truth she was thrilled as she wandered into the stacks and picked a box from the top layer, careful that it wouldn't upset the others. She set it down on the floor and tore open the moldy box top like an eager child digging into a Christmas present. Her nose and throat were immediately greeted by a blast of noxious fumes, the reek of photochemicals that were far past their expiration date. But the unpleasant odor was a small price to pay for the glory that lay within. Stacked neatly in the box were circular tins, the kind used to house prints in the old days. She felt the same sort of thrill an archaeologist might feel uncovering relics that had been buried for almost a century. November 11th. Golden Age Hollywood glamour at the Old Nick. One word. Amazing! My first day working at the Old Nick was everything I could have dreamed. I mean, at first I was a little skeezed out, being by myself in such a huge abandoned building. 
but after a few minutes I took to the place like a fish to water. Looks like this old gal, not really, I just turned 35, still young, was born to be a world-class film archivist. As if there was ever any doubt. So as it turns out, I guess my bosses aren't totally clueless. Though I seriously don't think they know what they have with the prints I found on the projection booth. In truth, I don't know what we have either. But you bet your butt I aim to find out. It's not going to be easy. The masking tape labels are worn and unreadable, so I'm going to have to get my hands dirty and look at the prints with my own equipment. Something that I'm not really supposed to be doing. But screw that. I'm not going to let those Ken and Barbie robots get the credit for finding some lost classic. I didn't tell either of them about my blog, but I know I can trust you guys. That said, mom's the word, first rule of Fight Club, don't let the cat out of the bag, etc. Anyway, more will be revealed when I go back there tomorrow. If it wasn't for the fact that I need to shower and get online to post, I would probably sleep there. I have the feeling that I'll be pulling an all-nighter there one of these days, or nights rather. The following morning, Muriel arrived at the old Nick early, pausing only a moment to admire her fountain angels before heading directly into the booth. Any reservations she had from the previous day were gone. Now the theater was an old and trusted friend, and she was its loyal caretaker. She loved its peeling walls and threadbare carpets, and if she had been a woman of wealth, she would have bought the place herself and restored it to its former glory. Alas, all of her trust fund had gone into college, and film archiving, while spiritually rewarding, was not likely to make her rich. It was a sad feeling to know that her time here was brief, that the Nick would soon be gone entirely. But Muriel was no stranger to sad feelings, so she pushed them aside and set about getting to work. With a little creative, R.E. jury-rigged, reconstruction, Muriel was able to get the old splicing table reasonably stabilized and quickly set up her own equipment. Less than a half an hour later and she was holding her first piece of celluloid under the looking glass and parsing through clues as to its title of origin. She identified it as a print of To Kill a Mockingbird, and while this was a film Muriel quite enjoyed, it was a well-documented title and something most students had seen by their first year of American Lit. Putting it aside, she dug into another box, then another, opening tin after tin, her spirits falling with every unremarkable find. Sunset Boulevard, The Asphalt Jungle, Cat People. All wonderful films, but all easily found on DVD, Blu-ray, or TCM on any given night. As the morning wore on, Muriel began to suspect that she would not uncover any lost relics in this dreary acquisition and the feeling that her talents were being wasted resurfaced like a badly digested meal. After lunch, Muriel resolved to remain optimistic, and shifted her focus to a stack of boxes that sat in the corner, looking somehow moldier and more pathetic than the ones she had opened already. Opening the first of the boxes, she was hit with a gust so foul that she could only assume that something had crawled into the packaging and died, likely a mouse or small rat. She shifted the tins around, checking the corners, and was happy to find the box free of rotting animal corpses. But that horrible smell had to be something, and she wondered if it would be wise to invest in a breathing mask or to stop the work altogether. Cancer was not high on her list of wants, but the fear of it was not enough to keep her from cracking the first of the tins. Looking down at the magic that was coiled within dissipated her apprehension along with the fumes.
Just by eyeballing the way the print had been stored, Muriel was certain that she was looking at something from the 1930s or earlier, significantly increasing the odds that she had unearthed something that had been lost in the annals of time. As with the other reels, the masking tape labels were degraded and illegible, so the only way to identify the print was by putting it on her table and under the glass, which is exactly what she did. There, magnified and vibrant, full-frame, black and white, were images that Muriel had seen only in film history documentaries and reference books. She scrolled the reel towards the leader, heart leaping as she scanned the frames for the title card. When she found it, she had to steady herself from fainting. Looking back up at her, an elegant script were the words Blind Courtesy. Blind Courtesy was a drama from 1931 that had been directed by British auteur Lyle Abernathy, who would only go on to direct two more Hollywood films before returning to his home country to care for his infirmed and ailing mother. The film's primary claim to fame was that it starred silent-era ingenue Delia Whitmore in her first sound role, and critics responded so unkindly to her deep, manly voice that the tortured actress hung herself a mere month after the picture ended its first and only theatrical run. In a sad twist of irony, Whitmore was nominated for a posthumous Oscar, but lost to Helen Hayes and the sins of Madeleine Claudette. Even in death, poor Delia could find no validation, a feeling to which Muriel, seeking validation herself, could relate. Despite the apologetic nomination, the film was a box office flop, and after a fire on the Warner Brothers lot in 1940, it was assumed that all known prints of the film had been destroyed. But here Muriel was looking at one, crisp and clean as it was on the day of its 80-year-old debut. How it had remained here undiscovered was a mystery, but the answer, likely a matter of simple neglect, was irrelevant. Now there was only the question of what to do next. Muriel knew what her Type A boss's curtain kit would want her to do. They would want her to follow protocol, to rebox the print immediately and deliver it straight to the home office. From there, it would be shipped back to the studio, shelved indefinitely unless some bean-counting executive deemed it profitable to shit the film out in a half-assed streaming format. And that was if things went well. Most likely was that blind courtesy would remain in the dustbins of obscurity, and no one, Muriel included, would ever have the pleasure of seeing it. The thought of this heinous injustice, this crime against cinema, was too much for Muriel to rightfully bear. It went against everything she believed in as an archivist, and as a film lover. Screw Curtain Kit, screw their protocols, and screw the studio. Muriel had to experience this lost treasure as it had been intended, on the silver screen. And she was willing to risk it all, her career, her future, everything, for the privilege. She looked to the twin projectors, standing tall like iron sentinels. There was something about them, some quiet, ancient wisdom that made Muriel question what she was about to do on a deep, preternatural level. But the lure of blind courtesy was impossible for her to resist, so she focused back on the table and carefully set about assembling the five-reel print. An hour later, her trembling hands threaded the lead of reel one into the gate, and the film was ready to be viewed for the first time in many decades. With the flick of a switch, the projectors rattled to life, and for a horrified moment, Muriel was sure that they were going to seize up and mangle the print. But the gate fluttered gently like the soft beating of a moth's wing, and the strip ran through unfettered. 
The twin bulbs lit with a soft glow, and down in the darkened auditorium, images once lost in time were recalled from the ether like welcome ghosts. Muriel could hear the scuffling of shoes and the rustle of fingers in popcorn boxes echoing through time, and she wanted so desperately to join them. To hell with it, Muriel thought. If I'm going to risk my job by running this, why should I stay up here for the entire screening? Of course, the responsible thing to do would be to remain in the booth and monitor the projectors, but Muriel had passed responsible a ways back and gone barreling straight on to Reckless. To come this far only to be denied the experience of watching the film in a darkened theater, well, that would just be stupid. And if there was one thing that Muriel Sharp couldn't stand, it was thinking of herself as stupid. So it was decided. She checked the gates one last time and, satisfied that all was working properly, went downstairs to take in a private, once-in-a-lifetime screening of blind courtesy. Her only regret was that she didn't have any popcorn to munch on. November 12th. A courtesy to my readers. Guys, I probably shouldn't be sharing this with you, but I'm just too excited and I have to tell someone. Today at the Old Nick, well, it seems that sometimes dreams really do come true. There I was, performing my archivist duties. I still have some qualms there, but whatever. When I stumbled upon a treasure that has been lost to the world for many, many years. What was this forgotten gem, you ask? Let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it concerned the blind daughter of a wealthy Southern family, who despite her obvious handicap, has a better grasp on the lives of her family than they do themselves. This, of course, leads to both laughter and tears, and the heroine, after several heartbreaking setbacks, ultimately finds love with a handsome and rich friend of the family. Roll credits. Corny? Maybe by today's cynical standards. But some of us can still get swept up in a simple, elegant story told by people who were more concerned with advancing a magical new art form than making a quick buck. Sadly, they don't make them like this sweet, timeless tale anymore. Not that I would have first-hand knowledge of the forgotten film in question. Sorry to be so cagey, but those of you who love old film as much as I do have by now figured out what I'm talking about. I wish I could tell you that soon you'll have a chance to experience what I experienced today. But alas, I do not currently wield that kind of influence in my chosen profession. But a girl can dream, right? Anyway, hope I haven't teased too much. I hope to have an equally exciting day tomorrow, so I'm off to bed, if I can get to sleep. I'll see you lovelies on the silver screen. XOXO! The next morning, as she passed the lobby fountain, Muriel experienced a dim echo of the dream she had the night before. It had been a rough reworking of blind courtesy, with Muriel naturally cast in the Delia Whitmore role. But instead of suffering from blindness like the film's heroine, Muriel could only see the world in the rich, black-and-white hues of early cinema. The events that transpired were more drawn from her subconscious than from the movie itself, and Muriel had trouble recalling any real details. But she did remember something that happened in the dream's finale. She was rushing through a train station to tell a faceless man not to go, that she loved him but she just hadn't been able to find the words, when something swept down at her from out of the sky. Whatever it was, it had great wings and long black talons, and before she could scream, the horrible thing was shrieking and tearing at her face, waking her with a jolt. 
This final, unpleasant detail had been buried until the sight of the winged figures on the fountain dredged it back up. Sadness crept in as she slumped up the stairs to the booth, a feeling that her dreaming mind and her angels had betrayed her. She considered starting with the newer boxes, the ones that held prints of well-known and well-preserved titles, but she couldn't resist the temptation to scour the foul-smelling box for more lost gems. And to her delight, her temptation was immediately rewarded. The third tin she opened held an infamous pre-code gangster picture titled Knuckles Mahoney, and if Muriel had her film history correct, and she was certain that she did, it had not seen the light of a projector since 1938. All of the reels were pristine and accounted for, making assemblage easy, and before she knew it, the print was threaded up and ready to roll. But there was one thing missing. She simply could not endure another showing without some popcorn, so she rushed out to the corner convenience store to see what they had. Settling for a bag of the pre-popped kind, she bought the snack and hurried back to the theater, eager to get her matinee underway. When she arrived at the doors, a homeless woman was parked in front, a junk-filled shopping cart blocking the entrance. Muriel stood patiently waiting for the woman to move, to get on with her daily routine. But the woman just stared at the theater, at the boarded-up ticket booth, pulling some memory out of her addled, soggy brain. Muriel cleared her throat, attempting to facilitate some sort of action, and the old crone turned to her, scowling with a pair of eyes that seemed clouded by smoke. "'I saw a picture there once,' the woman said. "'When I was a little girl. A horror picture. Dreadful film. Kept me up night for weeks.' Muriel had deep sympathy for the homeless, especially the elderly, but the clock was ticking and she was anxious to get to her movie. "'That's nice,' Muriel said condescendingly. "'I'm sorry, but I have to get inside.' "'Nice,' the woman bristled. "'Nothing nice about it. It was a dreadful film, just dreadful. Some kind of monster with wings.' The deep creases in her forehead became somehow more pronounced as she rifled through a long, troubled mind for more details. "'A harpy! Yes, that's what it was.' A harpy, like in Greek myth. Another pause. Dreadful film. There had to be something Muriel could do to move the woman along. The obvious finally dawned on her, and she reached into her pack for a single crumpled bill. No sooner had she offered it when the dollar was snatched greedily from her hand. The poor old crone was not above charity, it would seem. You promise me one thing, she croaked. If you find that movie in there, you burn it. Burn it to cinder. Though she had no intention of ever doing such a thing, Muriel wanted to get the crazy derelict out of her way, so she offered a placating nod. I will. You have a nice day. With a scoff, the crone pushed her cart on, rusty wheels squeaking her disapproval of the younger woman's patronizing. But Muriel was too preoccupied to give it much thought, and five minutes later she was seated, center aisle as usual, happily crunching away as Knuckles Mahoney began what was certain to be a thrilling life of cinematic crime. The film was pretty standard fare for the genre, and the actor who played Knuckles, a long-forgotten contract player named Miles Hoover, had nothing on the great screen gangsters portrayed by Jimmy Cagney or Edward G. Robinson. 
The production was chintzy for a 1930s studio picture, and Muriel found the story offensively misogynistic, even by the lax standards of the day. She was mentally composing a scathing review when the effects of the heavily greased, factory-packaged popcorn took hold, causing her to doze off. As often happens to those who fall asleep during movies, Muriel's dreams fused with the narrative playing out on screen, and in a devilish twist of irony, her subconscious cast her in the role of Cherry, one of Knuckles' poorly treated malls. Even stranger was that Muriel thrilled at being the gangster's plaything. Every cruel word, infidelity, and slap was endured with a rush of dark, forbidden pleasure. When the vicious thug finally saw fit to ravage her, Muriel lost herself entirely, clawing at his pin-striped suit with garish nails, her moans of pleasure rising to a lurid pitch that would never make it past the MPAA censors. Her cries transitioned to the wail of sirens, and she and Knuckles were now on the run, hiding out in some abandoned old warehouse. The gangster promised that the cops would never take them alive, and when they burst through the doors, Tommy guns blazing, Muriel closed her eyes and prepared to die in a hail of bullets. Instead, there was silence. She opened her eyes, finding the dream warehouse vast and empty, no sign of the cops or Knuckles Mahoney anywhere. She looked to the rafters and saw something perched there, hunched in a cluster of gray, filthy feathers. She thought that it must be some sort of strange barn owl, but when it spread its massive wings, wings too big for even a condor, that notion was dismissed. The creature swooped down, descending on her in a frenzy of flapping, and Muriel screamed as hand-sized talons tore at her face. She awoke to find that the scream was not emitting from her own throat. It was blaring from the auditorium's archaic and rickety speaker system. The image on screen was a mad flurry of frames, and Muriel's awakening brain figured that there was something going on with the projector. Likely the print's two-stripped audio track had gotten stuck in the gate and was causing the whole thing to jam up. In a daze, she stumbled from her seat, adding bad popcorn to the already filthy floor, and raced out of the theater as fast as her feet would allow. The scene in the booth was even worse than anticipated. The final reel was gummed so badly in the projector that it was shredding and peeling back on itself, like a banana being forced through a pinhole. Why the film didn't melt was anyone's guess, but Muriel, not waiting to find out, slammed down the power switch on the side of the lead projector. The machine rattled to a stop, and she did the same to projector two, nearly falling into a panic as it violently hitched and seized. But then the monstrous old workhorse powered down with a sigh, and Muriel allowed herself to do the same. After a long, slow minute, her breathing caught up with her heart. She had managed to save the machines, themselves valuable as museum pieces, but the print was another matter entirely. The distressed film strip had popped right off of the reel and was dangling out of the projector onto the unswept floor in a tangled lump. What remained in the projector was giving off an acrid chemical stench, and it didn't take an expert to see that it was a total disaster. This was a murder scene, a restoration homicide, and Muriel was the prime and only suspect. The right thing to do would be to gather the salvageable materials, come clean with the matter, and accept the consequences with whatever dignity she could find. But there was another option. 
If this was indeed a metaphorical murder, could she not consider the possibility of covering it up? No one knew of what she had found here, and would be therefore none the wiser if she just made it all go away. Did the world really need a restored print of Knuckles Mahoney? In truth, where was the crime in destroying a film that an enlightened film scholar such as herself had deemed dangerously regressive in its attitudes towards women? Wouldn't it be preferable to society on the whole that the cheap, nasty little bee picture remain forgotten, that chauvinists and rapists not be given more fuel for their sick fantasies, that they be denied a new icon to emulate like the mobster hero of Scarface or the serial murderers of natural-born killers? And if keeping this heroic act a secret meant that Muriel was able to keep her job, would that be such a terrible thing? Yes, she decided. This was the right thing to do. So without further deliberation, she gathered the mangled reel off of the floor and stuffed it into her backpack. She considered allowing the undamaged reels to remain behind. It wouldn't be hard to claim that the print was found with a reel missing. But the more she thought about it, the more she wanted the whole film gone. So she emptied her backpack of all other items and fit the rest of the print inside. Then she bolted out the door, a criminal fleeing the scene of the crime. She was past the fountain and almost out the front doors when she ran into, almost quite literally, Kurt and Kit. Muriel, Kurt greeted as the fleeing girl skidded to a halt right in front of him. We just came by to check up on your progress. Uh, yeah, well, Muriel stammered. Not much to report, I'm afraid. She shifted the overstuffed pack on her shoulder, attempting to shield it from their prying eyes. Kurt and Kit shared a mild look of bewilderment. Really? Kurt questioned. There was a whole stack of film boxes in the projection booth last time we checked. Well, I haven't gone through all of it yet, but so far all I found are titles that are readily available. She tried to maintain a chirpy tone, despite feeling as though she was being, albeit deservedly, interrogated. But hope springs eternal! With their eerily similar eyes, Kurt and Kit shared a look of skepticism, then redirected at Muriel, smiling in unison. If you don't mind, Kurt said, I think we'll have a look. Muriel's stomach dropped. Up there in the booth, sitting on her editing table, were five reels of blind courtesy, clearly discovered and tampered with. Once her bosses saw that, they would know she was lying, and when they looked in her bag, they'd find what remained of Knuckles Mahoney and assume she intended to steal it. Then, in addition to losing her job, she would likely be brought up on criminal charges. The jig, as Knuckles might say, was up. She was about to crack, to confess to it all, when something chimed inside Kit's designer purse. The wire-framed blonde scrunched her perfect Aryan nose and pulled out her smartphone, answering the call. Yes, she barked into the phone. Christ, Phil, are you sure? A weary sigh followed. Fine, we'll be right there. What was it? Kurt asked with concern. There was a mix-up at the Egyptian. The new print of Playtime is missing a reel. And like that, a bullet was dodged. Kurt and Kit rushed off to deal with the crisis at the Egyptian, leaving Muriel in the lobby, flushed with adrenaline and relief. Somewhere, someone had been watching out for her, and glancing back at the fountain, she couldn't help but feel that it must have been her angels. She offered them a solemn, sincere appreciation and promised that she would never, ever do anything like this again. 
A few blocks from her house, she ditched the pack in a lonely dumpster, and that was the last anyone would know of Knuckles Mahoney. After a restless, guilt-fueled sleep, Muriel returned to the old Nick the following morning and was relieved to find that Kurt and Kit had not been back to inspect the prints in the booth. The circular tins that housed the now-discarded print sat there, empty accusers, reminding Muriel that she would have to dispose of them as well if she hoped to keep her crime a secret. But without her backpack, there was no way to sneak them out and she couldn't risk just walking out the door with them, especially in light of her employer's unannounced visit the day before. An idea struck her, and she went back to the boxes, searching for a print that had been packed without a tin. To her surprise, at the bottom of the rattiest box, she found one. Collecting it the best she could, she brought the print over to the table to see what sort of movie deserved to be treated this shabbily. Shockingly, the film was remarkably well-preserved, a miracle considering it had been left unprotected for so many years. It was the right number of reels to substitute for Knuckles Mahoney, so it would seem that Muriel's promise to the angels had been heard and accepted. All she had to do was pack the mystery print into the tins and no one would ever be the wiser. She would even leave it for Kurt and Kit to discover, let them have the glory all to themselves. It was the punishment Muriel rightly deserved. Resolved, she reached for the film, and the end spilled from the table like a snake fleeing the grip of its handler. As she bent over to retrieve the dangling strip, she caught a glimpse of the images repeated in the frames, advancing incrementally like pictures in a flipbook, images that some haunted part of her subconscious demanded were given a closer look. "'Don't do it,' Muriel told herself. Just wrap this thing as tight as you can, cram it into those tins, and don't forget to tear off the labels. Do not push your luck any further. Though it killed her to do so, Muriel was able to stick to her guns and pack the film up without giving it another look. But she decided not to tell her superiors about the find until she had a night to sleep on it. So she busied herself with tidying work and went home later that day with the haunting images still spooling behind her retinas. It wasn't until she was home, sitting in front of her laptop, that she recalled the strange interaction with the homeless woman outside the theater the day before. A few keystrokes later and she was drawn into the mystery, like a hound chasing a rabbit down a deep and fascinating hole. November 14th. Not to harp on about it, but... As most of you know, I am not the biggest horror fan, but recently I have taken a... Let's call it an interest in an obscure film from the 30s that reportedly scared the bejesus out of folks back in the day. The movie in question is Shriek of the Harpy, and it was released by a fly-by-night production house named Anvil Pictures in a shameless attempt to capitalize on the Universal Monsters craze. The German auteur director, Rudolf Miner, was so embittered by the course of his Hollywood career that he returned home to the fatherland and joined up with the Nazi party after Hitler invaded Poland. Though Miner was never heard of again after the war, some accounts place him at a concentration camp that was stormed by the Allies, and it is presumed that he was shot and killed in the battle. Good riddance, I say. As for Shriek of the Harpy, 
The general consensus seems to be that it was a reasonably effective chiller with a standard script and some notable directorial flourishes from Minor, who was a protege, at least in spirit, to F.W. Murnau. The titular harpy was inspired by the monsters of Greek myth, and the creature design by legendary makeup artist Charlie Spears was said to have been quite shocking by the standards of the time. But the thing that was remembered most by the small number of people who saw Shriek of the Harpy was the blood-curdling sound the harpy made when it attacked its victims. The shriek, as it were. It was a sound so awful that it gave viewers nightmares for weeks afterwards, a claim that at least one viewer I have personally spoken to can support. Sound designers were not credited in films of that era, so we may never know who was responsible for the remarkable noise. But whoever they were, by all accounts, they did their job maybe a little too well. While all of this is fascinating, the thing about Shriek of the Harpy that interests me is the well-documented rumors that it was horribly, horribly misogynistic. I mean, hello, the movie is about a monster woman who is literally a harpy. Not too subtle there, Gustav. And Minor is certainly the one to blame. While the screenplay was credited to writer Eugene Torrance, the story is a creation of Minor's fevered brain, and Torrance later even apologized for scripting it calling the finished film Sick Chauvinistic Dreck. Sad footnote. Torrance hung himself at the age of 40 in the barn of his country home. His body was found swinging from the rafters, watched over by a pair of hooting barn owls. Needless to say, my interest is piqued. Lordy, have I rambled tonight. Well, off to bed, sweeties. If anyone has any more info pertaining to this lost treasure, please let me know. I have a teeny-weeny hunch that we have not heard the last of the harpy's terrifying shriek. Powerless against her curiosity, Muriel raced to the theater the following morning, yanked the changeling print out of the Knuckles Mahoney tins, and slapped it down on her editing table to have another look. Sure enough, Staring back at her in a lurid, dripping font was the title, Shriek of the Harpy. In this, her third major discovery, Muriel had stumbled upon a holy grail film for horror fans. Except that no one would ever know she was the one to discover it. Of course, she could take credit and boast about it online, but her claims on the internet would not be taken seriously by the fans who posted in the forums. And in terms of seeing it, well she would have to wait with all the other chumps if the day ever came when some distributor released it. Across the room, the projectors called to her. Muriel fell into a fevered trance, and an hour later she was standing before the twin iron hulks, now fully loaded and ready to roll on the film. A force had possessed her, a facet of her barely cognizant mind that demanded she bear witness to this cinematic atrocity. What was needed, she rationalized, was to face the film's transgressions head-on, to be incensed and offended by its backwards misogyny so that she might arrive at a keen and thoughtful dissertation, casting a healing light into a dark corner of cinema history. Yes, it was crucial, important, that Muriel Sharp view this terrible film, and nothing but a private, immediate screening would suffice. She stood there, finger trembling over the lead projector's power switch. Here was the moment of truth. She could back out now, leave Shriek of the Harpy to Curtain Kit and be done with all of this madness. 
she could do as she was told, follow orders and be the good girl, the nice, subservient girl who allowed her male superior to swoop in and claim all of the credit that she so richly deserved. She threw the switch, ran down into the theater, and was in her preferred seat right as the melting candle-wax title appeared on screen. The plot unfolded in a manner quite typical of a 1930s horror picture. It concerned a young couple, Adelaide and Calvin, who travel from an unspecified city to visit a friend that has taken up residence in a country manor inherited from his wealthy, recently deceased parents. Once there, the cheerful couple find that their friend, Rupert, is mercilessly henpecked by his shrew, one might even describe her as a harpy, of a wife, Nellie Ray. The constant nagging of his gold-digging spouse drives Rupert into the only place on the estate where he can find solace, the aviary, a magnificent bird sanctuary built by his dead father. When the brilliantly realized aviary set appeared on screen, Muriel's heart palpitated. It wasn't the room itself that caused the reaction. Though cleverly designed as a dome-like cage, there was nothing unsettling about it save for the fluttering and chirping of the live, on-set birds. The feature that spooked Muriel was the room's centerpiece, an ornate fountain adorned with grim, winged statuary. It was an uncanny cousin to the fountain that sat crumbling in the lobby, so much so that Muriel reasoned that they both must have been carved by the same sculptor. A slow panic gripped her as she tried to reconcile the coincidence, reasoning that the designers of the old Nick had somehow taken this film as the inspiration for the lobby's focal point. But in her heart, Muriel knew that the idea was patently absurd. In the aviary, Rupert discovers a parchment hidden by his father that appears to detail some sort of occult spell. Adelaide intrudes, attempting to coax Rupert out of his shell, but the gesture backfires when the married man professes his undying love for her. Flustered by the advance, Adelaide flees, not realizing that Nellie Ray has been eavesdropping the whole time. Using her husband's failed indiscretion as leverage, Nellie threatens Rupert with a costly and humiliating divorce, and their heated arguing drives the birds into a state of agitated cheeping. The sound causes Rupert to explode, to toss off the shackles of civility by grabbing Nellie and shaking her violently. She responds by clawing him across the face, and in murderous retaliation he pushes her into the fountain's pool and forces her head under the water. The birds take to the air, swarming in a furious cloud of feathers as Nellie struggles in Rupert's death grip, drowning to the flapping of their wings. Though the scene was staged to downplay the violence of the murder, Muriel still found it wholly distasteful. The character of Nellie Ray was written to be so loathsome that the viewer sympathized with Rupert's decision to kill her, and her shrill portrayal by an unappealing and rightly forgotten contract player didn't help matters. But the real blame lay in Miner's cruel direction. His distaste for women was palpable beyond the words that sprung from the actors' mouths. What strong-handed matron had beaten this attitude into him, Muriel wondered. What emasculating trauma had informed his viewpoint, warped his personality into something so vile that it demanded to be poured into every scene, every shot, every hateful frame? Since the dawn of cinema, female leads had suffered under the attack of monsters, 
but there was a sadistic quality ingrained in Shriek of the Harpy that went beyond simply placing damsels in distress. You could sense Miner behind the camera, leering as his violent fantasies were trapped in celluloid, and easily imagine the pleasure he would take in the back of a darkened theater, watching women squirm in their seats while the men sat smirking next to them. Shockingly, Miner allowed the character of Rupert to feel remorse, but it soon became apparent where all of this was leading. Using his father's witchcraft, Rupert attempts to raise his wife from her watery tomb, his efforts nothing but an act of madness witnessed by the birds. In a moment of restored sanity, Rupert tears up the parchment and throws it into the pool, and that's when things take a turn for the supernatural. The birds settle back on their perches, like churchgoers seating themselves at a mass, and as they watch silently, something rises from the pool of the fountain. But it is not Nellie, at least not any more. Great wings crest, shaking off water, and gnarled claws grasp at the fountain's lip, lifting up a terrifying figure. Emerging in Nellie's stead is the harpy, a distinctly female monster spoken of fearfully in myth, said to occupy a strata of hell reserved for suicides and those who profit from murder. A head flared with feathers lowers its piercing gaze at the stunned and terrified Rupert, and out of its beak bursts a terrible, soul-wrenching shriek. As had been reported, the sound was unforgettable and deafening. It shook the theater from floor to rafters, and for a moment Muriel feared that the sagging old ceiling was about to cave in from the stress. Thankfully, the scene cut away, taking the awful sound and the briefly glimpsed harpy with it. But those eyes, silvery, piercing, and locked in a tight shot, stayed with Muriel long after the frame faded into the next scene. She told herself that they were a trick of makeup, primitive contact lenses, but she could not shake them out of her mind. The scared little girl that still lived in her heart believed that those eyes and the monster they belonged to, were real. The next few reels passed like a nightmare as the harpy unleashed its terror upon the household. Rupert avoids death by fleeing into the night, but a pretty young housemaid who comes to clean the aviary is not so fortunate. The death toll increases with every following scene as one hapless servant after another meets their grisly fate at the talons of the harpy. Keeping with the censoring parameters of the time, the deaths were not graphically depicted, but Muriel found them to be far more visceral and suggestive than similar scenes in either the Universal or Val Luton horror canon. The lurid method in which Mina utilized his camera, a subtle hint of motion here or a lingering of a shot there, suggested that the deaths were violent, protracted, and painful. It was a total affront to Muriel's sense of good taste, Yet, as the picture barreled towards its inevitable climax, she found it impossible to pry her eyes from the screen. The prerequisite horror movie thunderstorm descends on the manor, and when Calvin and Adelaide discovered the maid and butler dead, they attempt to leave only to find that their car is stuck in the mud dredged up by the rainwater. Back inside, they are greeted by the disheveled and raving Rupert, also driven back indoors by the storm, and naturally the young couple assumes that he must be the killer. But Rupert insists that the deaths are the work of the harpy, a creature he has summoned from hell, 
and when Calvin attempts to call the authorities to take the ranting lunatic into custody, he finds the phone lines have been taken down by the storm. A shadow falls upon the living room skylight, and Rupert cowers by the fireplace, screaming that the harpy has come for him at last. Calvin and Adelaide are convinced that his mind is completely broken, but when the harpy shatters through the skylight, Rupert's ravings are proven all too true. Shown at last in its full glory, the creature designed for the harpy, though exceptional for the time, was no more convincing than the iconic but lovably hokey makeups for the classic versions of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, or the Mummy. The actress who played Nellie Ray had been transformed into a monstrous angel of death with great black wings and a crown of feathers that crested from her head into twin horns. The woman's fine, narrow nose had been re-sculpted into a beak, and those piercing, silvery eyes were framed by thick rings of dark mascara. She wore a Greek tunic-style dress that barely covered her ample breasts, and when she raised her hands they were refigured into four-fingered, bird-like talons. By today's standards, the monster design was quaint and would likely elicit laughter from a jaded, special-effects-savvy crowd. But Muriel's suspension of disbelief was strong and well-fortified, and to her the harpy was as terrifying now as the moment it landed on set. The harpy lunged for the camera and Muriel jolted back, as if it was going to fly off the screen and attack her. Calvin stepped in to defend Adelaide, attempting to ward the monster off with a fire poker, but the harpy swatted the weapon away like an insult. The creature attacked poor Calvin with both talons, raking long swaths of blood down his blandly handsome face. This sort of grisly violence was unheard of in films of this era, and even though the black and white muted what full color would have made plain, the effect was shocking just the same. Adelaide screamed and Muriel looked away, not able to face whatever horror came next. The harpy shrieked, rumbling the theater, and Muriel was shaken to the core, certain that the sound was coming from somewhere other than the auditorium speakers. There was a great crashing noise from something outside, and suddenly everything went black. Muriel sat there in stunned silence, thinking for a terrible moment that the world had come to an end. Then there was another teeth-chattering rumble, and she recognized it as the sound of thunder, and not the canned sound effect you heard time and time again in old movies. There was a storm outside, just like in the movie, but this storm was real and was likely the cause of the power outage. Muriel felt a rush of relief, but that gratitude faded quickly to annoyance at the inconvenience of her show being disrupted. God damn it, she cursed. The room was ink black, the row of seats barely visible in front of her, and rummaging through her pockets she realized that her phone with its helpful onboard flashlight was sitting on the editing table upstairs. Turning to the back of the theater, she stood and began to fumble her way around, hoping she could find her way back to the booth without injury. After that, she could try for the breaker room, but she highly doubted that this blackout was a simple blown fuse. The power was likely out for the entire city block, and she would be lucky if she could repack the print and get out of here using only the light of her phone. She was almost under the balcony when the thunder crashed again, freezing her dead in her tracks. When the scare passed, she laughed out loud, feeling foolish for allowing herself to get so spooked. "'Silly girl!' she scolded herself playfully. 
A shattering, shrill sound atomized the air around her, and Muriel's soul practically jumped out of her skin. It was the shriek of the harpy, but this time it was not diffused through the safety glass of cinema fantasy. This time it was real and in the room with her. Muriel looked about, wide-eyed, searching for falling plaster, broken glass, twisted metal, something, anything that would rationally explain the noise. But all she could see was the darkness closing in on her, and all she could sense was the certainty that she wasn't alone. The shriek came again, louder and closer this time. Glancing upwards, she could see it now, a great shadowy shape perched on the lip of the balcony, silver eyes gleaming in the dark. The harpy had come for her, demanding that she answer for her crimes, and despite knowing the fullness of terror, Muriel couldn't help but be awed by the spread of its magnificent wings. The monster swooped from the balcony, and Muriel dived into the nearest row, landing hard on the cement with her knees. She yelped as air rushed past her head, blowing her hair back in the gust of a rustling wing. The shriek blasted again furiously, and a steady flapping indicated that the harpy was circling for another dive. Stooped in a painful crouch, Muriel scuttled down the row, careful to keep her head lower than the seats. She was almost out into the aisle when talons tore at her back. Muriel screamed and thrashed her arms around as if attacked by an angry swarm of bees, but after a few seconds it became apparent that she was swatting at empty air. Breathing heavy, she scanned quickly around, and touching her shoulder she found no wounds, just the unmarred fabric of her t-shirt. The harpy, if still in the auditorium, had gone silently to ground, leaving Muriel standing alone with just the seats and the white vastness of the movie screen. If the harpy had ever been there at all, that is. Tears began to well up in her eyes, but instead of crying she broke into hysterical laughter. Madness! This was all madness! There was no flying monster loose in the theater. The stress of the job, the guilt over trashing a print, the crushing loneliness and self-doubt with which she was in constant denial, one or a combination of these things had pushed Muriel Sharp over the edge. The right thing to do would be to call her parents and tell them that she had cracked up, suffered some sort of nervous breakdown. Lord knows it wouldn't come as a surprise. Yes, that's what she would do. She would walk calmly out of this theater, go get some help and leave the world of film preservation and this godforsaken place behind. Feeling the fool, Muriel limped out of the auditorium, stumbling into the lobby to the startling crash of more thunder and the disorienting strobe of lightning flashes. The rain was coming down so hard that the domed ceiling had sprung fist-sized leaks, showering water into the fountain's pool, filling it to a frothing brim. From their perches, Muriel's beloved cherubs glared down, their once kindly faces full of scorn, their cheeks streaming with bitter rainwater tears. There was no comfort to be taken from them any more. Now they were harbingers of doom. As she neared the fountain, Muriel slipped on a wet tile and was driven down to her already agonized knees. She cursed and spat and blamed the cherubs, reaching for the lip of the large pool to haul herself up. But before her fingers could find purchase, a hand that was not hers slapped down on the lip. 
a clawed, four-fingered talon. Oh, God, Muriel stammered as the harpy rose from the fountain's pool, exactly as it had in the movie. Lightning flashed again, illuminating the creature, and Muriel could see that unlike its cinematic counterpoint, this harpy was realistic and entirely convincing. Greasy black feathers sprouted from gray mottled flesh, and its beak, no mere makeup job, was tapered into a razor-keen point. It extended its wings to their full glory, shaking off water in an icy spray, spattering Muriel's terrified face. The eyes, those terrible eyes, narrowed as it opened its beak, and when it shrieked, a slimy tongue probed forth like a worm seeking decay. Muriel didn't even realize that she had gotten to her feet until she stumbled back and crashed through the auditorium doors. Her mind was waging a war between shock and hysteria with sanity caught in the crossfire, still hoping that this was all some vividly realized nightmare. Thankfully, adrenaline flooded into the rescue, clearing the fog of terror, allowing her to snap into crisis mode. She scanned the area for something, anything that could be used as a defense, and her eyes fell upon a velvet stanchion rope that had rolled under the seats five decades past. Picking it up, she ran for the doors, reaching them just as the flapping, screeching horror was closing the distance. She pulled the doors shut and wrapped the thick, moldy rope through the brass handles, tying it off into a makeshift barricade. The harpy slammed into the other side, shrieking in vengeful protest. The obstruction was not going to hold the monster at bay for long, so Muriel quickly set about finding an escape route. She ran to the front of the theater, to the exits on either side of the screen, but both had been bricked up to keep out vandals and squatters. The only clear way out was back through the auditorium doors and past the harpy, an option Muriel was not about to consider. There was the possibility of trying to escape through the balcony, but she couldn't remember if the upstairs exits were boarded up or not. The question was moot as there was no way to access the balcony from the auditorium, unless she could convince the harpy to give her a lift. Whatever amusement Muriel took from that thought was obliterated by the splintering of the barricaded doors, and she furiously looked for some place to hide. The only place that could even warrant consideration was the crawl space that separated the movie screen from the theater wall, a space that measured no more than a foot across. Cursing her inability to commit to a diet, Muriel squeezed into the crawl space and hoped for the best. She fit, but just barely. The last of her body was pulled into the space when she heard the auditorium doors smash open with a mad flurry of wings. The harpy made guttural chirping noises as it swooped around the auditorium, seeking out its prey. It was only a matter of time before it sussed out where Muriel had hidden, so if she intended to mount some form of defense, she had better do it fast. As if in answer to her prayers, her eyes caught the dull gleam of metal lying on the crawlspace floor, not more than three feet away. Looking closer, she recognized it as the head of a hammer, and as the hideous, unnatural being flapped and chattered just beyond the barrier of the screen, Muriel squeezed further into the crawlspace to reach the weapon-ready tool. With incredible effort, she strained, reaching down and hooking a finger under the cloven head. She lifted her hand, balancing the hammer from her fingertips until it was close enough for her other hand to grab it by the handle. But her awkward positioning caused her hand to jostle, and the hammer fell loose and clattered back to the floor. 
The sound of feet landing was heard outside the screen, and a winged silhouette stood there, listening. Muriel held every muscle in her body still, hoping that the creature would be thrown off by her silence and lack of movement. In her terror, Muriel tried to reason what sort of mind, animal, human, or otherwise, the harpy possessed. Did it think? Could it be bargained with? It did possess feminine attributes. Was there a possibility, however small, that she could appeal to it on that level? One woman to another? Hello? Muriel asked the silhouette. Can we talk? Silence. Not so much as a chirp. Look, you don't have to do this. Just let me go and you'll never see me again. We can keep this just between us girls. I won't even tell anyone that I ever saw you. Girl Scout's honor. The silhouette cocked its flared head, and for a moment Muriel actually believed that the creature had heard her. I did it, she convinced herself. I got through to it. To her. But then the harpy gave its answer, an inhuman shriek, letting it be known once and for all that there was no soft, feminine side here to be reached. It lunged forth with murderous intent, talons raking at the screen, tearing away hunks in long, jagged rivers. In a final desperate move, Muriel reached again for the hammer, managing to grasp the handle in her cramped and sweaty palm. There was a loud ripping sound as the harpy tore into the crawl space, and Muriel swung upwards with all her strength, striking the monster hard on the beak. The harpy stumbled back, talons clawing at air. How you like me now, bitch, was Muriel's not-spoken-aloud retort. The creature shook off the pain with a rustle of feathers, and Muriel swung again, this time hitting it on the scowling crest of its head. The fiend screamed and spat and took to the air, and Muriel ran for the auditorium exit, which had been left wide open in the harpy's destructive wake. Muriel charged into the lobby, and forgetting about the slick tile, went sliding across the floor, smashing her body into the basin of the fountain's pool. The old Nick's ceiling was now a giant colander, showering down rainwater and soaking Muriel to her already shivering bones. As she pulled herself up to make a final dash for the doors, the harpy flew in from the auditorium, screeching in hateful triumph. It landed in a crouch right in front of the doors, and when it rose to its full height, the spread of its wings blotted out all roots and all hope of escape. To the right were the marble stairs that led to the projection booth, and without fully understanding what she was doing, Muriel ran for them. She took the slippery stairs two steps at a time, expecting the harpy to descend on her at any moment and tear her to shreds. But the monster never came at her, and she reached the booth winded and shaking but otherwise intact. She slammed the door shut, then grabbed an old chair to wedge under the doorknob, knowing full well that it wouldn't hold the creature back for long but it gave her a moment to catch her breath and allowed her frantic mind to formulate some sort of plan. The room was dark, but after some fumbling she was able to locate her bag, and in a nice bit of luck came upon a pen light, which meant she wouldn't have to use up what little was left of her phone's battery. She dug her phone out of the bottom, and was about to call 911 when she realized how insane her story was going to sound. Instead she called Kurt and getting his voicemail, left a message that there was an emergency and he needed to come to the theater right away. As soon as she hung up, the battery died. She turned her light to the projectors where Shriek of the Harpy sat threaded, waiting to play out its grand finale. 
It dawned on Muriel that perhaps, as crazy as it all sounded, the manner in which the harpy was destroyed in the film would be the key to destroying it here in the real world. Old horror movies always had happy endings, and unlike the slasher films of the 80s, when the monsters died in the classics, they stayed dead, at least until the cheaply made sequel. And Shriek of the Harpy had earned no sequel. Muriel ran to the projector, tore out the final reel, and dragged the last few feet of film over to her editing table, not even bothering to detach the print from the machine. Grabbing the looking glass, she held the penlight in her teeth and furiously scrolled through the final reel, doing her damnedest to suss out the plot. The climax predictably took place in the aviary, with the three principals and the harpy present. There were shots that seemed to indicate Adelaide attempting to reason with the monster, as Muriel had done, but ultimately it turns on the true guilty party, Rupert. Muriel hurried through the frames of Rupert being mauled by the vengeful creature, but the killing seemed to go on and on for several feet of film. Finally, the scene cut to Calvin recovering the parchment, and in a desperate move he throws it into the fountain, which calls up some sort of dimensional vortex from the depths. The harpy follows the parchment into the vortex, and as lightning strikes the manor and sets it aflame, the young heroes escape. The last shot was of the couple standing arm in arm, watching the manor burn to the ground as the final title card announced that in no uncertain terms this was the end. So that was it. She had to destroy the parchment, throw it into the fountain, creating a dimensional vortex that would summon the harpy back to hell. Only there was no parchment. There was no magical document of any kind. All Muriel had was the fountain in the lobby and the film itself. Perhaps the print of Shriek of the Harpy was the parchment, the magical MacGuffin around which this entire nightmare revolved. Yes, that had to be it. It was the only thing in this insane situation that made any sense. Something crashed through the projection window and a tornado of dust and feathers exploded into the room. Muriel instinctively grabbed her scissors from the table as the harpy picked itself up off the floor, once again rising to its full, terrifying height. Its wings were folded around its body like a protective cloak, but when Muriel flinched at it, wielding the scissors like a dagger, the wings spread to their furthest breadth. Then it shrieked at her with such force that her eardrums erupted into spasms. Acting on blind instinct, Muriel lunged with the scissors, stabbing them right above the monster's ample, womanly breasts. The creature's silvery eyes widened into glistening pools of shock, and it withdrew, clawing at the handle of the scissors, attempting to pull them out. Muriel wasn't going to wait to see if it succeeded. She scooped up what she could of the print and fled the room, trailing film in her panicked wake. Out in the lobby, the storm had built to a crescendo, the crashing sound of thunder nearly drowned by a thousand tiny waterfalls pouring through the ceiling. Muriel stumbled down the stairs until a dangling loop of film tripped her up and sent her sprawling the rest of the way, but there wasn't any time for pain. She struggled to her feet, wrapped the tangle of film around her in a death shroud, and launched herself towards the fountain. But Shriek of the Harpy did not want to let her go. It tightened around her like a constricting snake, sharp, sprocket-holed edges slicing into her, a death by a million paper cuts. It tripped her up again at the fountain, causing her to smash into it with her shins, sending white flashes through her body like electric jolts. Screaming in both pain and frustration, she ripped and tore at the print until her hands were bloody, 
but the celluloid was seemingly forged of steel. Finally, she gathered a handful and shoved it into the pool like a homicidal mother drowning an unwanted child. Then she waited for the portal to appear. At first, nothing happened. No change in the surface of the water, and Muriel nearly burst into tears. But then there were ripples, and then a churning, and soon a small whirlpool had formed, opening a fissure into some terrible world beyond. Despite the nightmarish implications of such a world, Muriel was so happy to see it, so happy that it was real, that she broke into hysterical gales of laughter. A shriek of torment carried over Muriel's cackling and she froze, staring blankly into the rushing vortex of the pool. The air came alive behind her, charged with the flapping of great wings, and Muriel knew that the harpy was diving in to attack. She could not bear to face that horrible thing again, could not stomach the thought of those terrible eyes being the last thing she saw, so she tensed and waited for the talons to rip her apart like human taffy. But there came no pain, only a splash and a spray of water, and Muriel opened her eyes to see the harpy torpedoing into the vortex after the rapidly sinking print. Then, both the monster and the film from which it was spawned were gone. Muriel? a voice asked behind her. Muriel whipped around to find Kurt standing there, flustered and confused. What in heaven's name is going on around here? That was a really good question. Muriel would have loved to explain it, to tell him the story of how she had saved herself and defeated a monster by drowning a rare film print in a fountain pool, but all evidence of the nightmare, the vortex, the harpy, even the storm, were gone as if they had never happened. No one would ever believe her, and at this point, Muriel wasn't sure that she could believe it herself. All she could do was throw her head back and laugh. And she kept on laughing for a very long time. November 26th. I'm back! So, gentle reader, your favorite, former, maybe one day again, whatever, Film Archivist has returned with another update. Right now I'm blogging from my parents as I have been released into their custody for the Thanksgiving holiday. Custody, you ask? Yes, well, that's a story, isn't it? <laughs> Suffice it to say, Muriel Sharp has suffered a mild breakdown. At least that's the official version. I've spent the last few weeks in the beautiful and palatial Angel Memorial Clinic where I've been treated for what the doctors are calling a brief psychotic episode. Sounds crazy, pun intended, right? Yeah, well, what can I say? Girl's got an active imagination, I guess. Jury's still out on that one as far as I'm concerned. Regardless, I'm on some serious medication and not the fun kind. My doctors, all male of course, hello female hysteria diagnosis, say I may need to be on it for the rest of my life. As if my life couldn't get any better. That last part was sarcasm, BTW. Since the cat, or bird more accurately, is now out of the bag, let's just say that my unauthorized movie screenings did not have a healthy effect on my pretty little brain. Somehow I got the idea that the monster from Shriek of the Harpy was attacking me, and I ended up stabbing one of my bosses, Kit the Fembot, in the shoulder with some scissors when she surprised me in the projection booth. 
she's alive, thank goddess, and not pressing charges as long as I stay in therapy. Then my other boss found me in the lobby trying to drown the horror movie print in the creepy old fountain that some lunatic decided to build there. Yeah, quite a scene, I know. Needless to say, I lost my job, got sent to the booby hatch, and here we are, back at mom and dad's. What an awesome start to my career. Yay me! Again, sarcasm people, look it up. So that pretty much brings us up to speed. But before I go, and not sure when I'll be back, it depends on how I respond to treatment, I do want to issue a mild warning. That stupid, misogynistic, and holy hell isn't misogynistic, but more on that someday, movie was rescued from my drowning attempt and has been fully restored. There is already a major home video release planned, and no, I won't be credited for finding it. Thanks for asking. Now, I won't claim that Shriek of the Harpy will have the same effect on you as it did on your intrepid blogger, but I do urge you not to give this evil film your time, attention, or money. For horror fans, I know that the temptation might prove too great, especially with the film's sordid reputation, but I'm begging you, please, just let this hateful piece of celluloid fade back into obscurity where it belongs. If you hear the harpy shriek calling you, I'm begging, begging you to ignore it. And someone in a film forum I frequent just posted that the studio who owns the rights has already announced a remake. Perfect. All content written and composed by Sebastian Bendix. Narration by Sebastian Bendix and Jennifer Yarborough. Copyright 2015.